Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, as we look into the Bible in Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 to 15, with a message entitled, The Pathway to Holiness. So let's join Dr. Newfeld now. John Newton, the author of the popular hymn, Amazing Grace, once wrote about his own progress in the Christian faith, and he used these words. He said, I'm not what I might be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But I thank God I'm not what I once was. And I can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, this I know without exception, every single person who is truly converted is on the pathway to holiness. But it's not until we're glorified that we're going to be fully like our Savior. But we are making progress. We're growing in holiness. Now, I wish I could say for every believer that the growth into holiness, or that which we call sanctification, happens in a straight line. What I mean is I wish that after coming to Christ from that day onward, every day is just another victory in the right direction. But that's not our experience, is it? Sometimes we fall, sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes we sin, and then we wonder if we've really made any progress at all. Often our growth into holiness looks like a stock market chart. You know, there seem to be crashes along the way. There's a a recession or two. But over the long haul, the movement is in the right direction. And so today, I want to, through the life of Jacob, show us a little insight into the normal pathway of holiness. Before we read the text, let's remind ourselves what's happened. We first encountered Jacob the scoundrel, whom God had chosen as a vessel of mercy. Then we moved to Jacob's conversion in Genesis 32, then on to Jacob the man who now walked after God. At first, as a man of God, Jacob handles himself well in the incident of the meeting with Esau back in chapter 33. But in chapter 34, Jacob stumbles badly in the incident of the rape of his daughter. He loses his nerve. He sins. He loses control of his family. In many ways, he seems like the old Jacob, which leads to the natural question. Has anything changed? Is he growing into holiness or not? Have you ever asked that question about yourself? I know I have. And if this describes you, well, today's study is for you. Genesis 35 and 36 are transitional chapters. They end the focus on Jacob, and then they move the focus or the spotlight onto Joseph. But chapter 35 is very important because with all Jacob's failures, it gives us a very important insight into how the growth into holiness progresses with God's flawed servant. From this passage, let's discover key ingredients in the path of holiness. So let's start with the first four verses of Genesis 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. You're going to notice that after about a decade in Shechem, 
God calls Jacob to fulfill a vow that he had made 30 years earlier to go to Bethel. And so after 10 years of raising a family and feeling settled in Shechem, Jacob is to pull up roots and move to Bethel. And the reason we are told is that he is to build an altar there, which means he is to lead his family in worship. But Jacob knows that his family is not ready to worship. From verse 2, we realize, and perhaps, you know, it's shocking to hear it, but the entire family has idols. In verse 4, we find that the earrings that are dedicated to different gods, well, how do we explain that? Has Jacob's family not been converted? Well, in an effort to understand Jacob and his times, many scholars have attempted to come to terms with how well Jacob understood the concept of monotheism, that there is but one God. Well, certainly, the Ten Commandments are clear on that. There is but one God, and and to worship any God but the one is a sin. But remember, it's still many years before the Ten Commandments. What does Jacob understand? Well, some scholars who have spent a great deal of time understanding the religions of Mesopotamia, well, they point out that there was in the minds of many people a distinction between the great cosmic gods who ran the universe and the personal household family gods who gave protection and took care of the needs of the local family. Well, if if that was the case, it's possible that Jacob's family believed in the God of Abraham as the creator, and the sustainer of all things, and then adapted household deities or gods in the form of household idols who would provide luck and wealth and protection. So that in reality, they're only pretending to be faithful to the Lord, but in fact, they're looking to their idols as a means of providing what they need in daily life. You know, I noticed that last Sunday, in a church that Kathy and I were attending. There was a woman wearing an earring in the form of a cross, but a loop on the top. It's it's actually a symbol of ancient Egyptian fertility gods. And by her easy demeanor and her familiarity with everyone there, it was clear to me that she'd been there a long time. That's what I'm talking about, a, a comfort and a familiarity with the Christian faith even while there's a fascination and even an attachment to the gods and goddesses of other faiths. And if that was Jacob's family's way of thinking, then a perspective emerges which really is quite interesting. Remember that Simeon and Levi have just destroyed the city of Shechem, and then all the family looted the city, which would, I think, have significantly added to the collection of household gods. Given also that Jacob felt vulnerable, it seems likely to me that the household gods became even more important to Jacob's family. You know, it's good luck and safety in the present hour. And then in a bold move in which Jacob recaptures his spiritual center and his leadership of the family, he now demands that everyone without exception hand in their idols. Verse 4 says, they buried them under the terebinth tree at Shechem. Well, that tree was probably considered a sacred tree by everyone in the area. And the act of burying the idols under it would signify or symbolize that Jacob was desecrating these idols. He's making them look foolish and pathetic and incapable of even protecting themselves from burial. And then they journeyed away. You know, we're speaking about key ingredients of a life on the pathway to holiness. Here's the first ingredient. Repentance from idolatry. Repentance means, quite simply, burying the things that are unacceptable to God and journeying away from them. 
please understand the difference between that and mere confession. Some of us repeatedly confess our sins, but we never repent of them. That is, we never turn from them. And if I am to understand the account of the burying of the idols rightly, I think it means that we are to get rid of anything and everything in our lives that hinders our relationship with God. So here's the question. Is there anything in your life that you have right now that if it were removed from you, would actually help your relationship with God? If you know what that thing is, I would urge you right now, remove it, bury it. In fact, do better than Jacob, destroy it. Repentance means turning away from those things that displease our God. Until we get a mind to do that, we will find no move forward with God. Well, here's the next thing, obedience. Now, before I go there, all of us need to come to terms with something that I find fascinating. I don't know where it is, but somewhere in the mind of evangelicals, when you tell them of the necessity of obedience, the first things that comes to many mouths like a stimulus response learned behavior. He says, well, that's legalism. In other words, for some of us, the requirement of obedience to the commands of God is met by a theological resistance. We don't obey because we think there's something wrong with insisting on obedience. Listen, obedience is not optional. Let's do some Bible study, shall we? First of all, the word legalism is actually not found in the Bible. So when someone accuses me of legalism, I just never bite. Who cares? The Bible never condemns anyone for legalism. <laughs> You're probably surprised to hear me say that. Secondly, what is found in the Bible is a condemnation of works righteousness or the warning against attempting to gain a righteous standing before God by works. In other words, if we think that what we do earns God's favor or that we by our obedience are earning right standing before God, then we are insulting the grace of God. We are declared right before God, not on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. But the Bible never makes obedience optional. James 2.14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada, and I want to share with you an important message. In the past couple of weeks, a group of individuals have come together in a unique way to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Together, they've raised pledges of $125,000 toward a ministry match campaign. That simply means for every dollar our supporters and listeners donate over the next few weeks, a matching dollar will be given by this group up to $125,000. We're so grateful for such generosity, those who have made this match pledge and to those who will respond so we might maximize its impact through the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Could I ask you to take the opportunity today so that the entire pledge of $125,000 might be completely realized, totaling $250,000. Your gift of 25, 50, 100 or more will make this possible. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Faith 
Faith and obedience simply can't be separated. If you have faith and no obedience, you're fooling yourself. True faith is always a faith that is accompanied by works. So for Jacob, obedience consists in his willingness to leave Shechem. I mean, after all, God had called him to go to Bethel years earlier. The time of his disobedience must come to an end. He has orders from God, and the family must put aside idols. He must fulfill his vow to go to Bethel. He must worship there. He must tithe 10% of what he has. That's what obedience was for him. For us, it is this. Whenever God tells us to do something, the answer is yes, always yes. Do as Samuel did when God first called him, say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's holiness. Now, the third ingredient on the path of holiness is faith. There's probably no greater vulnerability that Jacob has that when he begins to move his family. As they journey, they are now susceptible to attack. From the eyes of their neighbors, they've gone from peaceful shepherds to warriors. Now, in spite of the dangers and uncertain future, Jacob goes believing that God will watch over him. Now, can we all be honest here? The number one reason why any one of us fails to obey is because we don't trust God. Let's start with some easy examples. Why don't you tithe? Well, the answer is, you don't think you're going to have enough. God won't take care of you. Let's go to something harder. Why don't you love and forgive your enemy? Well, because you're afraid that your enemy will get away with the harm that he has done, and you can't trust God to take care of that. See, at every level, my disobedience to God is my slap in God's face, saying to him, I can't trust you with my life. I'll take care of my own life. And while we're in that mode, we can't be on the pathway to holiness. But when we finally surrender to God's will, his desire for us, then and only then will our life finally make sense. Only then will I begin to have the fruit of the Spirit operating in me, and I'll finally become what God wants me to be. Let's take it one step further. Notice now how God intervenes. What God does now is show Jacob and all of us reading the text that when we trust him so that we obey him, he will not desert us. Notice now verse 5. Our text says, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. I'm very mindful that some of us will think, Oh, I know. Point A is what I do, and point B is what God does. It is incorrect. Remember that my obedience to God is his gracious gift to me. Without God's grace, I would be completely unwilling to be obedient. So I don't become obedient and then I earn a blessing. That would be the sin of works righteousness. Rather, as God leads me to obedience of faith, I begin to notice some other actions. These actions are done by God. What is it that I notice? Well, Jacob notices God's presence. You know, up till now, when fear and Jacob are mentioned side by side, it's always been that Jacob was afraid. He feared Esau, so he fled for his life. He feared Laban, so he left him secretly in a hurry. He feared Esau again as he was coming toward him. But now here, for the first time, others fear Jacob because his presence as he journeys through brings about a God-induced panic. Everyone else is afraid. Here is the man who walks with God, and God gives him his presence. So let's continue to read verses 6 to 9. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, 
which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. This now is the third occasion that Jacob has had in which God has personally appeared to him. The first was also in Bethel, but that one came as Jacob was running from God. He was in a fitful sleep, and there he saw the glory of God. Second came at the river Jabbok, where he wrestled with God again in the night. But this one comes in the day. Jacob is not running and he's not wrestling. God only comes to bless him. That's what his presence now means. Jacob is a man at peace with God. And then comes what surely must have been the highlight of his life. I'm reading verses 10 to 13. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And so we have seen that God's presence has attended Jacob as he went to Bethel. And now we see, having obeyed, that he encounters God's blessing. You know, there are some who think that, you know, God's blessing is the life of no struggles or no hardship or no discouragement. But verse 8 contains a note of the death of Deborah, Rebekah's nurse. You know, Jacob's mother has passed some time before, but now her nurse dies, indicating that time is passing and that all contact with the mom he loved is now behind him. We're simply given to understand that Jacob weeps. But weeping does not deter the blessing of God. As we come to verses 10 to 12, we find words that remind us of the place where the entire story of Genesis began. Genesis, you'll remember, is the story of creation. It's the story of God making man in his image. It's also the story of sin and the fall of man and the curse on creation. But Genesis is the beginning of the outworking of God's plan to redeem and save the world. So in the process, God calls a man named Abraham. He tells Abraham to follow him in a wild adventure of faith. And he promises Abraham three things. One, he's going to get the land of Canaan. Two, he's going to multiply his offspring. And three, Abram will be blessed by his God. And in consequence of this, the whole earth is going to be blessed in some way. The effects of sin is going to be rolled back. And God is going to redeem his people through the seed of the woman whom he will bring into the world. And now we come to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, and God blesses him. I mean, first of all, God reaffirms that his name is Israel the man who lives in God's presence, who will always live in God's blessing. And secondly, he promises him the same thing that he has promised Abraham. God will multiply his offspring. And thirdly, he promises him the land of Canaan. The the blessing is there. And with that blessing, Jacob understands himself and his task. He isn't just living out his life with his kids. He believes that he and his family are the conduit of blessing to the world. He will encourage his children to have children. He will encourage them to teach their children well. He knows why he exists and what God has called him to do. I call this the third action by God, 
The first was God's presence. The second was God's blessing. And the third, God establishes his mandate on Jacob's life. Jacob is a man of mission. And I know this. There's not a man or a woman who's growing in holiness who is not also growing in the sense that they have a divine calling on their life. I'll give you an example of that. Philippians 1.21 contains those immortal lines of Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Each of us who are in, in Christ have a mandate to live so that the gospel of Jesus can be brought into the world. And Jacob is our forerunner in this sacred mandate. Bring the gospel to the world. And with that, let's finish this passage, verses 14 and 15. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where God had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Well, all throughout scripture, God's people have set up markers that are there to remind them of what God did in a particular place. In Jacob's case, he not only set up a pillar of stone, he renamed the city of Luz. He called that city Bethel, house of God. This was the place where God had spoken to him, and this was the place where God confirmed his covenant with him. This was the place that he was determined never to forget. God commands these kinds of altars. Christians have one. It's called baptism. This is the place where we remember that we have entered into a covenant with God, a covenant that has led us on a pathway that is sacred, a pathway that leads to holiness, a pathway that finally brings us to the promised land. John, let's return to this whole idea of handing over your idols. I think it's it's, it's necessary, but it's, it's more difficult than some might think sometimes, but this is what God's asking of us. Absolutely. Those things that become more important to us than God, um, those things that we can't live without. I mean, I think when I think of Paul saying, you know, that uh, for the sake of Christ, I count everything else as rubbish. I know that a great many of us say, I can't say that. There's a lot of stuff I couldn't, if it were taken from me, I would hate God because of it. But there, if there is such a thing in your life, you just need to renounce it. Unless Christ becomes the center of our affections, uh, we can't grow in holiness. So uh, we need to put the idols aside. We need to seek Christ first. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote, Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology, all while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. You know, messages like this help us feel like we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment means so much. So please continue to stand with us with your prayers and gifts. And Back to the Bible Canada will continue to do all it can to impact lives with the gospel. 
You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.